<laughs> oh, you want some spit, do you? Okay, here we go. Okay, guys, well, we're doing really well already. 105, a lot of us are here, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, let me pray first, and then we'll dig in. Well, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for bringing us into your family, God, and putting us into your church so that we can um, worship you together, that we can have your word, God, and and just be assured, God, of who you are and what you've done and how we can be made right with you, God. We pray that you will use the book of Galatians today to strengthen our faith, God, to reassure us of the glorious gospel of your grace, God. We pray that you would be here today. Um, God, bless me. God, help me to um, think rightly about your word and to speak rightly, God, so that you will be glorified. Um, just let this be edifying for us all, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, as I said, today we're going to begin a two-month survey over the book of Galatians. And so in two months, which will which would be nine weeks of classes. I'm going to be out next week. Pastor Allen will have the class. So it's going to be eight weeks we'll have to go through Galatians. And so it will indeed be a survey. Um, we're going to have to be kind of disciplined as far as how much we're going to have to cover because basically we'll be almost covering a chapter each week. So we're going to have to cover some ground. Um, so my job will pretty much be to try to discern what parts we can uh, move quickly through and what parts we really need to stop and dig in on. Um, today we're going to do an intro to the book. We're going to use the first verses here as an introduction to the book, and we'll try to get through as much as we can of chapter 1. Um, so my, my goal for this class is really just to familiarize ourselves with the book of Galatians. So eight weeks from now, we all need to be able to walk away from this book knowing why Paul wrote it, what was the point, um, what are some of the main texts in this book that really clarify Paul's points and why he was writing. And, and what I like about the fact that Pastor Emilio chose this book for us to do is that it's a very gospel-focused book. The book of Galatians is extremely gospel-centered. That's the reason Paul wrote this book. He's reminding us of, of how we're to be made right with God, how we're, how we're to be saved. And in the, in the words of Paul in this book, how we're to be justified. And that's really going to be the issue. That's, that's really what Paul's doing with this book. He's, he's clarifying to the churches in Galatia how we are to be justified. And so that's a very important word. And what I wanted to do before even getting into the book was kind of just looking at that word, justification. What does it mean that Paul says that we will be justified by faith? What does he mean by that? And so to, to look at that, uh, most of you probably in Galatians 1, but if you can just keep your finger there, go to Romans 8. And as you go to Romans 8, um, if you can at the same time, try to think of, of, of what definition you have in your mind of that word justification. Because you're going to hear it all the way through the New Testament. You're going to hear it in Pastor Emilio's sermons. And in Galatians, uh, we won't actually see the word in chapter 1, but from chapter 2 on, that's what Paul's talking about. And so we're going to use the word a lot. Um, so try and just think, when, when, if you had to define the word, what, what definition would you, would you give it? Um, and I think Romans chapter 8 will help us see clearly how Paul uses that word. I'll just give you like my simple definition, how, what comes to my mind when I hear the word. Um, I think it's, it's when God declares you to be righteous. 
It's a declaration that you are righteous in God's sight. That's a very simple, uh, very simple, short definition of justification. God declares us to be righteous. And so let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33 here, where we can kind of, kind of see how this works. I'm going to read the verse, and then, we're going to, then I'm going to read to us um, Wayne Grudem's definition of the word from a systematic theology. And I think when we, when we put all those together, we're really going to have a, an understanding of how Paul uses this word. In Romans 8.33, he says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? And so I like this because you see the word justification being used by God. is something that God does. And then you see the opposite. And so sometimes to see the opposite of the way a word is used can kind of help clarify what it means. And so in, in Romans 8.33 there, you see, who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's almost the, the, antithesis, or the opposite of, of to justify someone is to, to charge them with something, as if they were being charged to be guilty. And then you see God justifying, and then just the opposite again, who is the one who condemns? So on the one side, you have God declaring somebody to be righteous, justifying them, and on the opposite end, you have uh, or someone condemning, right? So there's the two sides, justification, declaring to be righteous, and the opposite is to condemn someone, to charge them to be guilty. And so we want to be justified by God. That's what we want. And so the goal of the book of Galatians is to clarify how it is that we can be in this position where God will declare us not guilty, declare us righteous. That's where we want to be. Let me read to us Wayne Grudem's definition of the word justification because it's a little more in-depth than my little simple uh, definition. He says, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us, and then two, based on those things, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So I kind of skip to the second part of that. It, it's God declaring us to be righteous, but that's based on something. God declaring us to be righteous in His sight is based on something. It's based on the fact that our sins have been forgiven, and that not only that, but also that Christ's righteousness has been given to us. And so with those things being true, God then declares us to be righteous. And the question is, how does that happen? And when does that happen? And Paul's going to tell us that happens when you put your faith in Christ. And it's not after you've accumulated enough righteousness of your own. That's what, that's what this book is about. And just as Romans 4 or 5 says, God justifies the ungodly. God declares the ungodly righteous. And so that is hard for many to, to, to get, is that God declares the ungodly righteous. And so I just have this as well. It's just like um, when Paul tells the, the church in Rome in Romans 1, um, 15, he says that he's eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to the church. And so for us to study the gospel and to study how it is that we're saved is good for the church. You may think, well, why? We all know the gospel. We're all Christians already. Well, for one thing, we can glory over the revelation that we've been given and how we know that we're saved, but also it's safe. It's safe for us as a church to review this and hear it over and over and to make sure that we're grounded in, in the doctrine of justification by faith. Because the time will come when people will come in and attempt to come in and will come from out trying to distract us from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because it's really a dividing line between what is Christian and what is not. 
And so it's very, very good for us to understand this as a church. It protects us from the old heresies. We all know of Roman Catholicism and the works righteousness that comes with that. It protects us from even the more cultic um, versions of false gospels, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. If you understand the gospel of justification by faith alone, you will be able to discern what is, what is a true gospel and what is not. And so it's safe for all of us to study this as a church. There's also, um, just to mention, more contemporary attempts to distort the gospel. Um, if you've heard of what would be called the New Paul Perspective, um, this is a very uh, contemporary attempt to distort the gospel of justification by faith alone. Um, and it's, it's more of a scholarly um, study and, 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 and thing right now, but it's already trickled down into co- uh, commentaries I read on Galatians. It's into the seminaries and now into churches. And so it won't be long before that pops up. Um, sooner or later in your life or even in the, in the church. And so we need to um, protect ourselves and be grounded in the gospel so that we're not led astray. And also just have here, it, so it's good for the, for the entire church to be grounded in the gospel, but also as individuals. Because we all want to be 100% sure that we've got the gospel right. Right? I mean, don't you want to know that uh, when the guys in the white shirts are walking on the street, that maybe that you know that they're not right. Don't you want to be 100% sure that you are saved and that the wrath of God is not on you? I mean, I can't hear this being taught enough. You know, I always want to hear the gospel and, and, the, and the clarity that Paul's going to use here in Galatians. Um, it's good for me. It, it's cause of rejoicing for me that God has given us such a clear gospel. And so Paul's not going to leave any room for debate on the issue of how works relates to our salvation. There's not going to be any, any doubt about it. And so it's good for us as a church, good for us as individuals to study this. Um, with all that being said, let's go ahead and dive in here to the, to the opening verse here of Galatians. Galatians 1.1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so we have Paul here writing this letter, and we're not going to spend any time on who Paul is. We all know Paul very well. Um, the same Paul that wrote half our New Testament, the same Paul that Pastor Emilio's um, teaching through 2 Corinthians with. We know Paul. Uh, but Paul here says that he's an apostle. And the word apostle can just have a very basic, simple meaning, which is one who is sent. But here the apostle Paul is definitely using this word um, in reference to the office of an apostle. There was an office of an apostle, which um, clearly are these, these men who were designated by Jesus Christ himself to be the pillars of the early church. These were those who um, could attest to their apostleship through signs and miracles, it says. They could attest to, to, the, to the reality of their apostleship through signs and miracles. Um, these men actually had the authority to write scripture and the ability to discern what was scripture and what was not. Um, and another requirement of being an apostle would be that you must have been an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And Paul most certainly was that. And we all know, hopefully you're familiar with Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter 9. It's probably the one most of you are familiar with. But we know there Paul was on his way to persecute the church. And that's where Jesus Christ in his grace stopped him dead in his tracks and called him. Called him to believe and called him to uh, be an apostle and spread his gospel. And I guess one more thing that I think these days especially might be um, important to look at is that this office of apostle does not continue today. Because as Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians 15, 
he says that Jesus Christ appeared to him last of all. Or he was the last apostle to have um, Jesus Christ appear to him in that sense. And as that being a requirement to be an apostle, um, him being the last to be um, witnessed to by Christ, that would, that would end the line of apostleship. Um, so let's go on here. He says right here, this is important to see this very first opening verse and what Paul's saying, because I think this is the thrust of his entire argument for the first two chapters. So if you want to just very easy thing to remember, what are the first two chapters about? What's, what's Paul trying to do? The very first verse is a good one to go to. It says that he's not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so a big part of what Paul's trying to do, because as I said, Paul's trying to clarify the gospel. He's trying to let the Galatian churches know that he knows the gospel and he has it right. And so to set a foundation for his, for his um, trying to convince the churches of his gospel is first he's trying to lay the, the groundwork that he is an apostle sent from Jesus Christ himself. And so he says this right out of the gate here. He says that he's not sent from men, nor through the agency of, men, of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so what Paul's doing is he's immediately bypassing um, the authority of man. He's bypassing even the authority of the other apostles who were already called before him. And he's going straight to the highest authority that there is, and that's Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's what Paul grounds his, his argument for his apostleship in, is the call from God himself. And so I think it's also helpful here to notice the contrast. Maybe you saw it, but on the one side you have Paul giving the the, the calling that would be from man as opposed to Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so we see a contrast between um, Paul's view right off the bat of who Jesus Christ, what, what, um, what category Jesus Christ would be lumped with in this situation. He's, he's not merely man, but here he's, he's linked with being with God the Father in authority. So I think that's good just because as I say, we're, we're going to be clarifying the gospel in the book of Galatians. And the deity of Christ, which is a fundamental, under, a fundamental truth that we must have to, to understand the gospel and the, the worthiness of Christ's sacrifice, is that Christ was God. Um, we're not going to get a drawn-out defense of that aspect of it in Galatians. I think Paul just assumes it, even with that first verse, you see that Paul um, includes Jesus Christ with God the Father as opposed to being a mere man. Um, and just in case you're wondering, so we have God the Father, Jesus Christ, put together in the category of deity with authority. Um, the work of the Spirit is going to have an entire chapter dedicated to it in chapter 5. So Paul's definitely Trinitarian um, already. In verse 2 he says that he's writing this, And with all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. And so Paul's writing to the churches, plural. He's writing to an entire group of churches, in the province of Galatia. So this would be a, a circulatory letter. This letter would be uh, passed around to the churches so that they could all understand the gospel and all be, um, in this case, reprimanded for, for leaving the gospel. Um, because I don't have the skills of Brother John in putting together a really nice map for you guys, I actually used the inspiring ASB map in the back of mine. <laughs> it, it might be helpful just to look back, if you do have that, just to see what where this letter is being addressed to, in mine it's the very back page, but there's usually a map of Paul's missionary journeys. And so um, he visits these cities. They would be Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. 
if you can find those in your Bible. That's, that's the region and the, and the churches in the area um, just north of Pantelia. If you find that, that's a bold, probably bold cap, lettered word. Uh, but that's the area that um, Paul is writing to. These are the churches that he founded there. And if, and if your map has a little bar there that indicates the distances, you can see how far away this is from Jerusalem. Paul was covering ground hundreds and thousands of miles um, to, to do his work. And maybe just a side homework assignment, which was really helpful for me. I kind of did this just because I've always wanted to. But if you can take that map and you can read through um, Acts 13 and 14, you can trace out with, with the people who put these maps together Paul's journeys and what cities he went to. And it really helps you to get a grasp and understanding of how great a distance Paul covered. And, how, and where all these churches are, you'll see the churches of Corinth, of Ephesus, Philippi, and then these churches here in Galatia. And so that, that was helpful for me. And, and this is just a good time to mention the date of the book. Most dated around 50 A.D. So it's a very, very early book. Just as when we did James, James is probably the earliest New Testament book. The book of Galatia is likewise very, very early. And what's so interesting about that is I think what we're getting to see here and being exposed to we're seeing all of the issues that arose, that, that all the issues that, um, that the gospel had to deal with as the gospel left the Jews and went to, to the Gentiles. And we're seeing how the gospel was preached to them and how it was um, defended against those who were still holding on to the old covenant. And how, how Judaism, how the old covenant played out with this new covenant having been brought in by Christ. And so you're seeing how a lot of these issues that you can imagine would come up. Uh, what was a moral requirement that would continue? What was, what was merely a symbol um, of some of the older covenants? And, and should those continue? We see these issues coming up um, throughout the book of Galatians and, and in the other New Testament books as well. Um, and we will get into, into those. But back to Paul's introduction, verse 3. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul uses his, his what becomes his usual greeting of grace and peace. And Paul uses it almost every, every time, and I don't think that he's using it whimsically because the truths of, of grace and peace are really what the church in Galatia is missing. Grace is what unmerited favor from God, which is what the Galatians were getting away from. They were trying to earn it through works righteousness, by, by law keeping. And then peace, peace is what comes from this grace. The grace that God gives you brings peace with him. And so that's really important for, the, for these guys to understand because although they're trying to get peace from God, they're doing it by, they're, they're trying to gain that by keeping the law, and all that's going to bring is wrath. And so it's very important to understand grace and peace, especially in this church. And, and Paul then tells us how this grace and peace comes and where it comes from. It says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. And so the basis of this grace and peace is the substitutionary death of Christ. Right off, right off the bat, Paul defines the gospel and defines this good news and where this grace and peace comes from is from the death of Christ. That's the good news. And he says he's going to rescue us from this present evil age. 
And so that doesn't speak of us being raptured when we believe, um, but it speaks of how God, and he's going to show us in, in Galatians 5 how the Spirit um, enables us to overcome sin and evil in this present evil age that we're still in. And that's, what, and that's what we'll see. And then, of course, all of this is according to the sovereign will of the Father, so that in the end he'll be glorified. All of this death, all of this salvation is so that the Father will be glorified. And so now, with, with this, what is a short introduction compared to most of the other books, it's, almost, it's very different from Paul's other books. Paul's going to get right to the problem here. He's going to get right to the issue, which is that some have come in and distorted the gospel of grace. He says in verse 6, and, and anyone, if there's any questions, all this is pretty, pretty cut and dry so far, but if you have anything, please um, interject. But Paul says here in verse 6, he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another one. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be accursed. Paul here using the, the strongest language that he could use is, is referencing damnation for those who are distorting the gospel. And Paul's amazed, he says, and, Paul, and for me, it's, it's understandable. Could you imagine having received the, the gospel with the clarity that the Apostle Paul would have given it? Paul's amazed that these are, are leaving the gospel. Yes, sir. I just, I find it amazing the, because with the anathema, I mean, damned to hell is actually what he's saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he was preaching a different gospel. Let him be damned to hell. Yeah, that's right. And he repeats it. Yeah, he repeats so, it. Uh, yeah. Evidently, he's trying to make a strong, strong point. That that's right. He, he couldn't say it any, any stronger. I mean, yeah. damnation is the ultimate the ultimate retribution for, for wrongdoing. And so he had to distort the Gospels of the Apostle Paul. I mean, how many times does he use anathemas throughout, the, um, throughout his writings? Not that often, but when it comes to distorting the Gospel, the Apostle Paul does anathematize. Yeah, which is, as our brother said, that, that means to damn someone. He, he, you're worthy of damnation to distort the Gospel. And that will be your end. Damnation, apart from repentance, of course, and, and turning... Hey, Chris. Yes, sir. Uh, I didn't know if you were going to mention, uh, but just were um, you going to talk about uh, the use of the imperative there? Mm -hmm. um, only because, and I don't, I don't mean to get really technical, other than to point out this one thing is that you know we hear a lot, a lot of people that struggle with judging, you know, and they'll say something like, "Well, it's not my place to judge," mm -hmm. or uh, you know, I hear this so much, you know, just. From different folks or whatnot, but especially doing evangelism and stuff. But, and Carlos just watched you know, videos yeah, last you night. Know, it's not my judge, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I I don't know who's going to heaven or who's going to hell. That's not mm -hmm. for me to say. Right. If you ask somebody like, is this person saved or, or not? Well, you know, that's that's for God to judge. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that that word there, you know, he says, let him be accursed, actually placing the moral obligation on the church. Mm -hmm. to recognize a person to be a curse. Mm -hmm. That's what the force, the imperative is, yeah. you know. Okay. It's not really, I mean, it doesn't need to be an option. Yeah, so it's a command to judge based on people's gospel. Yeah. That's what he says when it's an imperative. It means Paul's, com it's a command. He's saying you judge these people as, as damned if they preach a different gospel. Yeah, that's right. No, I wasn't going to mention the imperative, but that, that, that is right. That's what Paul's, um, that's what he's saying here. And so it is surprising. I mean, I'm surprised. I know all of us have, have probably seen 
um, somebody fall away from the faith and go to another religion. And it's amazing because I don't know how, especially understanding grace like we do, how could you leave um, the gospel of grace for another? It's, it's amazing. Because on that mm-hmm. point, um, you're saying like some that fall away from the faith. Like I'm still trying to understand that. Like I've heard, you know, different um, explanations about, you know, once saved, always saved, of course. But then, you know, those that they've heard the gospel, they've heard the truth, they actually seem to have walked that walk mm-hmm. and then totally did a 180 as if they never even heard the truth. Mm-hmm. And then I've heard, like, I guess, like, like someone like John MacArthur or someone saying that that's because they were not saved in the first place. They were false converts mm-hmm. because uh, once the truth resides in you, I mean, you can't follow it. So yeah. what does that mean? Like, yeah. when you say... Well, I think, yeah, John MacArthur's right. When I say fall away, I mean, just like some may be, appear to be in the church, you know, you think that they're, they're saved. They, they even sh- may show fruit for a while. But like we talked about last night, you know, a lot of the times you'll see throughout the church, like the church will test. If somebody can't maintain good fruit in the church and can't submit to authority, and event- it takes time, but over time they'll go out from us, you know, to reveal that they never really were of us. It takes time. Anybody can muster up, you know, some religious activity for a while, but only the Spirit will be able to give you the power to do that for the rest of your life. You know, so it's perseverance is really a, the sign that there really is a saving grace. Because yes, ma'am. I think that's why Paul was so, he emphasized so much examining yourself in the faith, prove mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. if you're in the faith. Yeah. With 1 John. Yeah, the evidence is, is what comes out like in James, yeah, 1 John. yourself and then you'll be able to see. Yeah. Then you'll be able to test others. others yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. Um, with the four different kinds of soil, it's pretty clear that some are going to look mm-hmm. like they're absolutely bearing fruit for a time. Yeah. And it's hard to tell. We can't tell the difference for a time until they fall away, and that's the other It is hard to tell. Yeah, that, that is the struggle that it's hard to tell. So how much should we trust each other? You know, am I saved? You know, yeah, we... we for yourself, I think it's a little different than others. You know, the spirit can testify with your spirit that you're a child of God. Um, those things different. Well, and I think that's a good point that Brian brings up. And I just, I, I think that lends to the idea of look how explicit. I mean, when somebody deviates from the gospel, mm-hmm. there is no clear evidence that a person has fallen away right. once you've embraced heresy mm-hmm. or you've denied orthodoxy, mm-hmm. some essential of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an easier, clearer line to draw than if somebody like falls into another sin where maybe you know that. Yeah. So the gospel, and that's what I like about Galatians. That's why I'm glad I'm studying and that we're all studying is so we will have just such a clear understanding of the gospel. And so that will be our first dividing line as far as determining somebody else's salvation. You know, because we all want to do that. We need to know if we're evangelizing somebody or fellowshipping with them. We, so in order to, to, to weed out their, their gospel is, is what we need to understand. Yes, from Jason? I was just going to say, I think this ties into what, what Emilio has been teaching about not um, associating or being equally unyoked. Mm-hmm. You know, as we have to make a distinction between a false and a right gospel, and if we can't do that, then I wouldn't know how to not be... <laughs> yeah, fellowshipping with somebody who's not... Yeah, that's right. So that, that's, and, that, and that's what we're going to get out of the book, just to hype it up. That, that's what Paul's going to be doing. He's going to be showing us these dividing lines of the gospel that, de- that determines what is saving and what's not. But let me point out here, since we're right here in these verses, um, the most significant thing, I think, to look at in 
somebody leaving the gospel and turning away and denying the gospel is just what are they leaving, or specifically who are they leaving. Look there, um, it says in verse 6. He says, I'm, I'm so amazed that you're quickly deserting him. Right? When somebody leaves the gospel and, and, and goes for another gospel, they're not simply leaving um, a certain preacher. They're not leaving a denomination. They're not leaving even that church. They're leaving him. And that's, that's terrifying. It's, not, it's nothing to, I mean, it is, it is bad um, to leave a church, but to leave him, you're, you're walking away from your only hope. You're walking away from, from God. And so those are the people who would, who would show up on the day, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't I prophesy, didn't I do miracles? And you can say, I never knew you, depart from me. You know, that's, that's going to be a terrifying place. Because that's what these people are doing. These people in Galatia would be the ones who would show up, Lord, Lord, did I not do these things? That's the error that they had. Um, here they're trying to justify them. In Matthew 7, the, the verse that I'm talking about, they're trying to justify themselves before Jesus Christ himself by what they did. And that shows you that they did not have an understanding of the gospel. Because we're not going to show up, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? Um, you can expect um, an anathema from Christ at that point. And then he says in verse 7, speaking of, speaking of this other gospel that they're giving into, he says it's really not another. There's no other gospel. He says only there are some who are disturbing you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so the word gospel means good news. The gospel of grace is good news. Any other gospel that includes a works-righteous system of law-keeping is not good news. Man. That is horrible news. It's horrible news because we have a holy God. You know, that is not good news to go to uh, Roman Catholicism. It's not good news to go to Islam. It's not good news to go to moralism. That's right. Because our God is holy, and you will not do any of those, um, no matter how minimalistic your system is, even if it's just the five pillars of Islam, you will not keep that in thought, word, and deed perfectly. I mean, so any other works-righteous system is hopeless. And so, so you're, you're leaving the only, the only real gospel that there is. Um, I just want to, I'll, I'll just read it. You don't have to flip there. Because I think that Paul understood this point um, so well. And he explains it in, in the book of Philippians. After he lists all the things that he did in Judaism, all his accomplishments, what other people would look at as, as a righteous life. He goes on to say in Philippians 3, he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's not what Paul wants, is a, is a righteousness that he's earned by keeping the law. He says, but he wants that, is which, that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul knew what he wanted to be, his righteousness, and it wasn't his. Paul's thought was this righteousness that comes from God, an alien righteousness that he got by faith. And in that same verse, we see the very first mention of what's going on in this church. He said that there's some there who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that's what's happening in these churches in Galatia. The Jews are basically following Paul in his missionary journey, his preaching of the gospel, and, and, and coming into these churches and trying to bring people back under the law. Um, and so these are who distorting the gospel of Christ. And, and what did it take to distort the gospel? Well, in the, in the Galatian churches, there's only a couple of examples given, specific examples given. I think it leads to, to, to more. We can, we can assume they were doing more than just these, but 
in the churches of Galatia, they were simply basically um, requiring the Christians there to come back and, and, and take the symbols of the previous covenants. He, he, he says that they're going back to these elemental things. They're keeping days. You know, they would have been keeping these new moon, festivals, Sabbaths, all these things. He says in, uh, that's in Galatians 4. In Galatians 5, the other example he brings up is circumcision, another sign of, a, of the covenant. Right? And that's what these people are going back to and doing. And so, um, but, but, so the motivation behind this, I think, is very crucial to understand because I know good brothers in the Lord who, who uh, practice a Sabbath day. I know good brothers in the Lord who, um, most of us, circumcision. Do we have, are we not circumcised? Paul says in, in Galatians 5, flip over there because it's important to see this. In Galatians 5, 5 2, he says this. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Okay? So that, if you just take that, that by itself, um, to, re- to receive circumcision, you're, uh, to go back to that law and to do that and to practice that, um, you're being... You're being uh, severed from Christ, he says in verse 4. But this is the important part in verse 4. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. And so that's where the problem lies with these. Um, We know this because um, Paul has Timothy circumcised, for instance. So if Paul here says that you've fallen from grace if you receive circumcision, um, how is Timothy not an error in in that sense? But we know, that we know the motivation behind Timothy being circumcised. It was so that he would not be a stumbling block to the Jews, so that he could preach the gospel to them. That's a much different motivation um, than trying to be justified by law and not understanding that you're saved by faith alone. That's the dividing line. He says here, these are being, they're seeking to be justified by the law. So they're trying to keep all the, the Old Testament. They're trying to basically become an Old Covenant Jew in order to be justified. Yes, sir. So, I mean, I have a question about that scenario. I have a, mm-hmm. a friend who's a Messianic Jew, mm-hmm. and um, what you're saying and what I'm understanding is if, if they're doing it because there's just this overwhelming love to do it, mm-hmm. then that's kind of cool, uh, understanding that, that it's not a requirement, but more of just a... I want to do this because I want to offer this up to the Lord. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too familiar with Messianic Judaism and what, like, what their distinctions are, like why they do that. And maybe they just, I mean, I can know why the New Testament, I could very easily see why, why these Jews who become Christians would still feel obligated in their hearts to be circumcised. I mean, the, especially when there's the Sabbath and things like that are symbols of the Old Covenant. I mean, your heart would kind of, I mean, your conscience would kind of be bound to those things, you know. We see in Romans 14 people still keeping days. They're still just like the uh, Messianic Jews. They're probably still keeping Sabbaths and stuff oh, yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. um, but Paul doesn't, in Romans 14, doesn't condemn the people to hell. He, they're brethren, but um, he almost treats them as those who, are, you know, as it's a conscience issue, you know, like. Sure. So. And, and that's what I've gotten the feeling because him and I speak quite often. I'm very good brother in the Lord, mm-hmm. and um, his perspective is a, a lot different being a Jew um, that believes in the risen Messiah. And uh, I'm just trying to get that understanding and distinction. Yeah, so, it, so I think it would be his motivation behind that. 
you know, if he sees all of these things being fulfilled in Christ, you know, and it's almost just their way of almost recounting that, you know, I, sure. you know maybe, but yeah, so is he holding the doctrine of justification by faith alone? You know, if so, you might show the brother some grace. And if yeah, I, you know, um, I've, I've had some, you know, experience with Messianic Jews um, uh, back in the church in California. I was a part of, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends would attend a Messianic congregation just out of curiosity, and then mm-hmm. eventually they went there because they developed friendships and stuff like that, you know. But I, I think there is a danger with Messianic congregation, in my personal opinion. I think they do oftentimes slip into a, a, a almost like, a, I don't know what to call it, other than maybe like a soft legalism, mm-hmm. where some of these brethren that I was exposed to were beginning to change even some of their cultural habits. For example, they stopped calling Jesus Jesus. They started calling him only Yeshua, Yeshua. because they thought that was some sort of, you know, sacred, you know, way of saying it, you know. And so it does, any time you start going, in my opinion, sort of backwards in redemption, you know, where you start sort of erecting walls of ethnicity and you start dividing people into whether you're Jew or Gentile, trickling down to your practice in your church, I mean, almost like by default, you will begin to do things like observing the days, the the, the feasts, Hmm. things like that, which they did, celebrating the Passover again, Hmm. which is almost directly against what Paul is teaching in Colossians chapter 2, where he warns them directly, why would you go back to the shadows once the substance is here? Mm -hmm. So Messianic congregations, in my opinion, have erred on several different points, Mm -hmm. that just being one of them, but... um, but would I still regard them as brothers? Yes, absolutely. <coughs> because, as uh, you know, Chris, you pointed out, I think the most crucial thing, and that is that they are not seeking to be justified mm-hmm. based on the things that they're doing, they're, mm-hmm. you know, to my knowledge. But I still don't like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and that's yeah. exactly why I brought it up, because it, they, they can talk the, the you know, justifi- justified by faith alone, uh, mm-hmm. but then they have all of these things that they're so just, there's no other way. The bound to them, no, right? no balance yeah. to it, you know, it's, I have to do this almost. Yeah, um, and um, I, I just found that very interesting and uh, mm-hmm. based on what we're talking about. Yeah, so that's what, I mean, that's what's going to be so helpful about just getting this understanding of justification by faith alone. That's how we'll you know, be able to decide a lot of times, like whether somebody's a brother or not. You know, you have to be gracious with them if they're off on some other stuff. You know, not everybody's going to be Calvinistic Baptists, you know. I mean, we're going to have to be gracious. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was going to say, Robert, and along with what Pastor Mary was saying, that was just my thought, that, you know, they, I've seen that within some friends as well. Their intentions are, their motives are pure in the beginning. And, and it probably still is as they keep going, but I what I was going to say is that it's dangerous because it's, it's opening up those doors of that temptation of falling in into the wrong motives eventually, right? And then before you know it, you're so deep into it, and then it's legal. it turns into legalism. And so, and I've seen that myself, and, and, not that, and I think that's great. I had a friend that I commended her for her head covering. I mean, she, and she was truly doing it out of pure motives for the love of being obedient to the Lord. And it, but I just saw it, it started getting deeper and deeper with everything else, and it just allowed, it just opened that door of being tempted, uh, going into the wrong. Any, any error, any error is going to 
Yeah. Have its tentacles, yeah. right? Okay, so so let's go on, guys. Um, where do I want to jump to just due to time? Let's go to uh, verses 11 and 12. Because, again, Paul, as I said, the first verse of the, of the book um, really shows you Paul's, um, what he's striving to prove here uh, at first. In 11 and 12, he almost repeats it. Let's read 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, as I said, Paul's really reiterating this fact to the Galatian churches. Um, he wants them to understand his apostleship is from Christ, his gospel is from God himself, um, so that he can go on and, and with that authority clarify the gospel. Um, and why Paul's having to do this is because, as I said, there's been those who have come into the church and they're trying to <coughs> undercut Paul's authority. They're trying to undercut his call by God. He's not one of the original 12 is probably what they would be saying. And um, so Paul really has to, to lay this groundwork so that he can, with authority, um, preach this gospel to them. And so let's get into these arguments. We've got about five minutes here. Paul's first argument that he's going to give of, of why his gospel is legitimately from Jesus Christ, his first argument is his pre-conversion days. Paul's going to argue from the fact that, um, as we'll see, he was not a Christian. He was not being influenced by Christianity. This gospel was not, had no chance of, of infiltrating him. It says in verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former, life, my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And so Paul's just giving us a summary of his, his pre-Christian life, and it was that of, of zealous persecution of, of Christians. And so this is almost like Paul's argument and Paul's way of saying is that due to his zeal and, and due to his 100% um, commitment to Judaism or, or this sort of Judaism that he was into, um, there would have been no chance for man to infiltrate his thinking. The Christians were not having any effect on... Paul was there at the preaching of Stephen. Paul wasn't um, converted or convinced by the, the things that Stephen said, um, that Stephen's martyrdom. And so Paul's point is almost, I was not even close to listening to those Christians. I was killing them. I was persecuting them. Um, so I did not get my understanding of the gospel from man, he says. Paul's second argument in verses 15, his second argument is going to be his actual call from God. And I think he, the way he describes it is, it had to be a supernatural experience because he was not listening to man at this point. It took Jesus Christ himself um, to appear to him to, uh, to convert him. In verse 15 he says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Right? So we have Paul's conversion here in this statement, But God. But when God. So this follows up Paul's um, pre-conversion days of just being a murderous man, killing Christians. And then we know, uh, because we know what grace is, is but God. What, 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 is it, what, is, what are y'all, is there any other text y'all think of as but God? Does that come to mind? I think of like Ephesians. He says you're dead in transgressions and sins, but God. That's right. You know, that's, that's, that's the grace of God entering in. That's what has to happen. God has to intervene. And so Paul's call here is from Jesus Christ himself. 
And I think Paul's life is just the, the quintessential example of grace, the quintessential example of somebody who has not earned a, a, a real righteousness before God, but yet is saved. God justifies Paul, the ungodly murder, murderer, here. Paul's um, conversion was no act merely of his, of his free will. He didn't just on his, the road to Damascus just put all the pieces together and become a Christian. It took the grace of Jesus Christ um, to convert him. Paul never, never missing an opportunity to mention the sovereign grace of God. He talked about how he was called to this in his mother's womb. Just the predestinating call of, of Paul's life. And God, God worked. Um, and so just by way of application, I, I, I thought of uh, 1 Peter 2.9, where Paul was not just simply saved to go to heaven. Paul was called for a mission. Paul was called to go to the Gentiles and spread the gospel. In the same way, we're not, we're not saved merely to go to heaven only, but we've also been given the a same sense and the same calling. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we all have a mission as a church and individuals to do the same thing, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. And it's a privilege to do that. Um, for time's sake, we'll, we'll stop here, guys. Um, but as we're going to see, Paul's going to go on in chapter 1 to continue to defend the idea that his gospel was from God himself and that it's God's gospel that he's preaching. And he's actually going to um, continue that idea through all of chapter 2. And so that's what we'll be looking at. Paul just grounding the, the idea that his, his gospel is legitimately from God himself. It's not a man-made gospel. And that's it. Let's, let's pray and we'll go to, to worship. Well, Father... Um, you've once again brought us together, God, to sit comfortably, God, with Bibles on our laps and to just be able to talk about your word, God, in perfect safety, God, without um, any distractions, God. So we praise you for the grace you've given us, God. Help us to use all of these graces that you give us, God, to turn around and to do what we've been called to do, to declare your excellencies, God. Help us to live lives that would not cause those to blaspheme your name, God. Help our lives to match our our gospel presentation, God, and, and just give us clarity, God, on the gospel so that we can discern our salvation and the salvation of others so that we can um, work rightly for your glory in this world. Um, Father, bless our pastor today as he preaches the word to us, God. Open up your scriptures to us. We pray that your spirit would give us the, the hearts and the minds and the ears to see, to see Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.